For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, Abel. And why did Cain murder Abel? Because Cain's deeds were evil and Abel's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. But if anyone among you has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, yet closes his or her heart against his brother or sister, how does God's love abide in that person? Little children, let us love in word. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let us pray. Our Father, we have come before you this morning in real need. We come because we know that we do not have in ourselves what it takes to give us spiritual life and vitality. And so we come depending upon you this morning that you bless the preaching and the hearing of your word to the end that Christ may be glorified and to the end that he may be honored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The fruit of Christian love is the title of my discourse this morning. The fruit of Christian love. In what now seems like ages ago, the one-time president or two-time president of the United States of America, Barack Obama, took to Twitter and wrote a tweet. And he tweeted, and I quote, retweet if you believe everyone should be able to marry the person they love. Hashtag, love is love. While statements like this shock us because of course, what Obama was saying was really about the institution of marriage no longer being closed, as it were, to the man and the woman, I think there's a bigger problem with that statement. And Obama's statement sort of characterizes what many of us now come to understand about the word love. When he said love is love, what he meant was love is what you say love is. Love is what we determine love to be. Love is a subjective thing. So, for example, like we saw this past week, a man can love his wife and put all his property in his mother's name. Love is love. If it works for me, it's love. Or a person can abuse another person 
verbally or physically or otherwise, as long as it works, as it, it love is love. Or you've heard this before that I love you, but I cannot stay close to you. I love you best from afar. As long as it works for me, love is love. By saying or thinking that love is love and it is dependent on whatever circumstances we find ourselves in and what is expedient for us, we essentially mean or say that love is meaningless. What the Lord will be showing us this morning is a different kind of love. What God wants to show us from his word is what I call Christian love. And what does Christian love look like? That's a question. What does it mean if a Christian says, I love you? What ought it to mean? Over and above what the culture says, whatever Hollywood says, whatever celebrities say, whatever any other person says in the world, the Bible has a different view of love. And what the Apostle John will be doing for us in our text is to instruct us on the basics of Christian love. So that when we are within this community and we say love, we understand what we are talking about. If you recall, when we started chapter 3, we said that what was in the mind of the Apostle when he wrote chapter 3 was to sort of bring instruction concerning what it means to be a child of God. So that the central theme of 1 John chapter 3 is the children of God. And in verse 1 to verse 3, he sort of tells us about the wonderfulness of the fact that God could bestow his love upon unworthy sinners and make them his children. And in verse 4 to 10, he concerned himself with showing us what the moral life of the children of God is meant to look like. And in the passage before us this morning, he'll be teaching us about the fruit of Christian love in God's children. And in the text before us, the apostle presents us with three principles to guide our thinking and our practice when it comes to this issue of love. In the first place, the apostle teaches us that Christian love is a command that is at the heart of the gospel. Look at verse 11. He says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So, whatever he's saying here, he has said before. And whatever he's going to say here, he will still say in chapter 4. So this is the, 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 the way the Apostle John writes. He goes in a sort of secular form. So in 1 John chapter 2, verse 24, if you can remember... When we looked at it, he says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. So when John uses the word beginning, he's talking about the beginning of your Christian walk. That is the point at which you gave your life to Christ and submitted to Christ's rule and authority in your life. The start of a person's Christian journey. That's what it means by beginning. And when he talks about a message in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, he had said before that this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. So when he says this is the message, he's pointing to the message of the gospel. Or more specifically, 
He's pointing to the apostolic message. What the apostles as a band of people taught and preached to the Christian community. And so when he says in verse 11 that this is the message you have heard from the beginning, he says something like this. At the point where you were becoming a Christian, at the point where you were coming into God's kingdom, you were taught certain things. At the point where you were embracing Christ, certain truths were presented by us, the apostles, to you. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, he said the truth that was presented to you was the truth about God's holiness. And of course, the fact that it was because of God's holiness that Jesus had to die. Because God is holy, God cannot accommodate any type of sin. The prophet tells us that God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. And here he's saying, not just that though. When you were becoming a Christian, you also heard that the Christian faith has demands. On the one hand, the Christian faith is really doctrinal. We must know certain truths about God. We must know certain truths about Jesus and his coming. But we must also know certain things about ethics. Christian ethics. So the Christian faith does not just have an intellectual side of it. It also has an ethical, practical, living out, social side of it. And when you came into Christ, this was the message we taught you. That you ought to love one another. And this message is rooted in the very teachings of Jesus himself. In John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. In John chapter 15, verse 12, Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. So the command to love is not something that is a, a kind of addendum. It meets us at the very point where we become Christians. That's what the apostle is saying. And this love was practically seen in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, Luke tells us that they had everything in common. And nobody lacked. That was love being practical. It was not a thing that was assumed... It was a thing that was practiced and seen in the Christian community. And even in the first two, three centuries of the church, what marked Christianity was love. Once upon a time, a man by the name of Hadrian was Caesar, was the emperor of the Roman Empire. And one of the secular philosophers then sort of did a kind of writing on the people in the Roman Empire and all of those things. And he wrote to uh, Emperor or Hadrian and told him, behold how they love one another. In describing the Christian community, what he could say was, see, they love one another. Because it made no sense. Today it doesn't shock us as much as it must have shocked that philosopher then. These people are multiracial. Jews and Gentiles seated at the same table. People who ordinarily will not talk to themselves on the streets are talking to themselves. This one broke all sorts of social barrier that a slave and his master can sit at table and talk about Christ and feed on the Lord's body and partake of his blood. We see that, of course, with Philemon and Onesiphorus. We see that again in a story in church history of a woman called Perpetua and her slave, Felicity, where 
A slave owner, somebody who is prominent in society, could die with a slave. And this philosopher said, see how they love one another. They could see how the Christians took care of each other, even in the moments of plague. When there's a plague breaking out in the community, everybody runs inside. It's the Christians that come out. And the Christian says, even if I'm going to die, I'm going to take care of my brother. They saw how the Christians were hospitable to the poor among themselves. And what they could say was, see how they love one another. They saw how forgiveness, forgiveness, real forgiveness, was there in the Christian community. I wonder how the Apostle Paul could call himself a Christian, if not that people forgive him. And John says, this is at the heart of the gospel message. Friends, John tells us that this love is to be specific to brothers and sisters. You know the problem we have sometimes? We thrive in vagueness. There's a song by a popular guy who is late now called Heal the World. And sometimes when we talk about love as Christians, we think about it in a vague term. Okay, where do I start to heal the world? Love everybody. The Christian is meant to love. And so it's just a vague idea in our heads. And John says, "Mm -mm. let me give you something specific. Love the brothers and the sisters. In fact, I'll go as far as saying that we can't really make spiritual progress if we are vague. If we are, if we are people who are vague, we can't make any progress. I'm going to give free will offering. How many percent? Free will. At the end of the month, how much have you given? I'm going to read my Bible. What time? Anytime I feel. How many chapters have you read? Nothing. I'm going to be like Brother Lawrence. I'm going to be practicing the presence of God. So I don't have a fixed time when I pray. I don't have a prayer list. I don't have a disciplined way of praying. What I just know is that I'm going to be practicing the presence of God. So as I'm stepping into the bus, I'm praying. As I'm stepping into the keke, I'm praying. Vagueness does us little good. And John is saying, don't think about love in a very broad sense. Put names to these people. John is saying, love Emeka. He's saying, love Joy. Love Jude. Love Paul. Love John. Love Joshua. That's what he's saying. And when he's saying brothers and sisters, he's not merely saying people who are from your mother's womb or from your village. Because there are two types of brothers. There's the one that is blood brother and there's the one that is from your village. At least the way we think of it. In chapter 3 verse 9, he has talked about those who have God's seed. Who have been born of God. And he says these are people who are the children of God. And John is saying, when somebody is a Christian, I have an obligation, you have an obligation to love that person. This is a command not to like, but to love. Because should be told, you won't like everybody who is a Christian. There's no way you like everybody. I don't think everybody here likes me. And I'm sure if I'm going to think about it, I don't like everybody. You know why? When we like things, it is often sort of like an emotional response to something. Like if you ask me this morning, what is your favorite color? I will give you a color. Ask me why. I don't know. It just happened that perhaps when I was a little boy, my dad would buy more of those kind of colors for me. And then I just sort of get attached to it. 
or perhaps Arsenal fans. Well, you say, why do you support this club? You, you can't give... I, 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 I've not seen a football fan who can give you a specific answer. Maybe the person will bring out the book and say, this is why I support Arsenal, this is why I support... <sighs> Liking, it's just like, you just see somebody on the street. I say, I just like how she talks. I just like how she dresses. I just like the way he carries himself. That's what like means. I just, I just like. In fact, the Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, this idea of liking belongs to the animalistic part of us. We are not thinking to like. That's why sometimes when we find cliques in church, it is often, we are not thinking it. You just come to that, you find that this person loves reading Richard Baxter. You love reading Richard Baxter. You people are friends. You just start talking to that person. This person works or is studying computer science. You are studying computer science. You don't have to even think it. You just find that, hey, whenever I want to talk about what is happening in school or at work, this person will understand. And then we just, John doesn't say like everybody. The command is to love. Love is beyond liking. Love is not emotional. It is not just something that happens because the person dresses a particular way or looks a particular way or talks a particular way. Essentially, when the Bible talks about this Christian love, it is an attitude. It is a disposition. It is a way of viewing somebody. Love looks at this person and says, I see, the person does not talk well, I know. He does not respect, I know. He does not, she does not do this thing well, I know. I don't like how this person does this thing, I know. But, in spite of those defects, I'm going to treat this person as though those defects were not there. I am seeing these defects, I'm seeing these issues, I'm seeing these dots in the life of my brother or my sister, but I'm going to treat the person as if I genuinely like him or her. I'm going to call and check on the person, even if I know sometimes the call will be dry. Because what are we talking about? You don't even watch football, you don't read, you don't do this one. You don't, so what are we going to talk about? Love says, even with all of those things that I know, I like, that I don't see in you, I am going to have a certain kind of attitude towards you. Friends, love is intelligent. Love thinks. Love considers all the facts. And you know why? Because of the seed of God. So why do we love? We first of all consider the fact that this person is a brother or sister in whom the seed of God resides and then we have a certain kind of disposition towards that person. This is the command. If John tells us to like everybody, we are in trouble. But he tells us love the brothers and the sisters. So you see, the first principle is that love is a command given to God's people alongside the very essential gospel message. But in the second place, the apostle teaches us this morning that love is a marker of true Christianity. That what marks Christianity as Christianity is love. Look at the first part of verse 14. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And I like how he describes the Christian faith. You see, the Christian faith is not a way of life. It is not, it's not a cultural thing. You know, in our country, Christianity is cultural. If you're not a Muslim, you're a Christian. If you know they go mosque, they go church. And so people have this issue. How can you say somebody's not a Christian? This person has been going to my church for 20 years. 
Christianity is not a pattern of life, essentially. It is not a way of living, a way of dressing, a way of talking, a way of associate, a way of dressing. Mm -mm, that's not Christianity. At the very core of Christianity is this, that a man or a woman has passed from death to life. That a person, by nature, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, the Apostle Paul tells us, he was telling the Ephesian church then, and by extension us, that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. When a person is born, eh, because of the sin of our first parents, there is a principle of death at work. That's why Apostle Paul also wrote in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, he says, for God has moved you from the kingdom of darkness. That is the default state of every man and woman that is born in our world because of the sin of Adam. The punishment we get for original sin and even our actual sin is death. And we've talked about this before, the physical aspect of death, the spiritual and the eternal aspect of death. And John is saying when a person becomes a Christian, something supernatural happens. A Christian is a person who has had a supernatural encounter, a supernatural experience of being moved from death to life on the basis of what Christ has done. That's why Jesus could say in John chapter 5, verse 24, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes has eternal life. He says that person has passed from death into life. And the proof that we have passed from death into life is not that we have a dream. I saw a vision. I have a feeling inside of my heart. I just like the way things happen when I come to church and I'm always happy. I saw a tweet one time. Somebody said, I mean, that everything you need is in God's presence. You are just depressed. Just go there. By the time you come out, you are just happy. That's not proof. Ah, uh, no. Unbelievers can be happy. The proof, according to the apostle, is love. Let's not mix it up. Love is not how to pass from death to life. Love is not a step somebody takes eh, to become a Christian. Love is not maybe somebody would create a list of people and say, I want to be a Christian, then I'll be marking this list of people I should be calling, and this does not love. We are putting the horse before the cart. How do they put the cart before the horse, rather? Love is a marker. Love is a proof. I think it was Paul Washer one time, he was preaching. And he says, imagine a man walks into this church this morning. Perhaps I walk into the church late by 11 p.m., 11 a.m., knowing I'm supposed to preach. And then you ask me what happened. And I tell you, when I stepped out of my house, a big trailer hits me. The first thing you say is, it's not true. Because if a trailer hits you, there must be a mark. There must be something. Your clothes is not torn. You're not even dirty. There's no, you're not limping, nothing. Similarly, when a man becomes a Christian, when a woman becomes a Christian, according to the Apostle John, the proof is love. Of course, that's not the only proof. But one proof is love. Now we can ask ourselves this question. This is a test whether I'm a Christian. Do I find myself loving the brothers and sisters? Pause. I'm not talking about loving your clique in church. In every church, there is a clique. There's a clique of people who flock together, probably they are students, 
Their clique of people who flock together, perhaps they are in the same age group. In fact, people flock together when they have similar challenges. If four of us are trying to travel abroad and the thing know they work, we'll form a clique together, those trusting God to move abroad. If we are trusting God to build a house or buy land, you just find that we are, we are together, we are together. No, that's not what John is saying. Do you love the brothers and sisters? Put names. Do you love Emeka again? Do you find that you love Paul? Not just those two people you come to church on a Sunday to greet. You know, some of us, we have lists. If I don't greet A, B, my Sunday is not. So I, when I greet A, B, I'm done. For the, I've gotten my emotional enough for seven days. And then I go to hell with every other person. As long as A, B, my guys, my guys, them. I've greeted them. Do I find that I am loving the brothers and sisters? Even those who I do not like. Those who don't talk the way I want them to talk. Those who don't dress and look the way I like people to look. Do I find that I am having a certain kind of attitude towards them? The truth is that the absence of love shows that somebody is not a Christian. Look at the second part of verse 14. He says, whoever does not love still abides in death. In fact, according to verse 15, that person is a murderer. He, you, see, you know, in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus was teaching about the upside-down nature of God's kingdom, he said, you have heard it said that a man commits adultery. And he says, no. Once a man looks upon a woman with a lustful intent, adultery has been committed. The opposite of love is hate. And once a person hates his brother, or sister, what that person is doing in the heart is murder. Look at verse 15 again. Everyone who hates his brother is not like a murderer. He's not behaving like, he's a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And the supreme example for us is Cain. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 to 16, we see the story of Cain. What happened? Adam and Eve gave birth to two sons. The first son was Cain, and the second son was Abel. The Bible tells us that in the course of time, Cain came to present a sacrifice, an offering to the Lord, because Cain was a farmer. He brought what he had gotten from the soil and presented it to God, and his offering was not accepted. But Abel, being a sheep guy, a shepherd, brought from the flock, and it was accepted. Cain became angry, became jealous, and he killed his brother. Look at verse 12 of our text. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. Cain was a child of the devil. Cain was an imitator of the devil. Cain was being influenced by the devil. Now, some Jewish scholars, rabbis, say tradition tells them that Cain became saved. That's not the, the, the talk of the apostle. At the point when Cain was killing his brother, what was at work? Cain was of the devil. And it was because of this that Cain murdered his brother. And John asks, why did Cain murder Abel? Simple. Because Cain's deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So some of us used to ask this question. Why did God... Uh, not accept Cain's sacrifice. I think it has to do with the nature. Cain was of the evil one. 
essentially. God cannot accept the offering of somebody who is of the evil one. And because Cain was of the evil one, whatever he was going to offer would not be a righteous offering. And the reason why Cain hated Abel was because Abel, his sacrifice was accepted. And hatred grew in the heart of Cain. Resentment grew in the heart of Cain. He began to dislike his brother. God gave him a warning. I said, be careful. Sin is at the door. It's going to have you. But what did Cain do? He called his brother and told the brother, let's go out to the field. And Cain murdered his brother. Not because Abel did anything. Do not be surprised when the world hates us, which is what he says in verse 13. The world does not hate Christians because Christians, of course, there are some Christians who try to look for trouble. For example, they are doing Ramadan, and then you go in the midst of where they are breaking their fast, and you are shouting. All of you are doing rubbish. You are idolaters. That's not wisdom. Whatever you get, you get. But by virtue of being in the light, by virtue of just being righteous and acting and living righteously, the world will hate the believer. I know what John says. Do not be like Cain. Why did he use the example of Cain and Abel? I think for two reasons. The first reason is sometimes the Bible writers want to shock us. They just want to shock us. For example, if you are reading the book of Genesis from chapter 12 when God calls Abraham and you don't know the story, trust me, you'll be shocked. That so this guy actually carried his son and he climbed up the mountain with the son and told everybody to stay down. What's going to happen? Or the story of Joseph, as you're reading page by page by page, and here he wants to shock us, primarily with the fact that these are not friends. These are brothers. These are brothers. Let me paint it in a 21st century picture. Cain and Abel were born of the same mother, of the same father. They will probably eat dinner every day together on the table. They will watch television programs together on TV. They will dress Christmas clothes the same. They would play together because they were only two children. They would live life together. This is not brother of village. This is brother of my mother, son of my mother and my father. And the shocking effect is that somebody could kill his own blood brother in cold blood because of hatred. Because of hatred. And I think John wants to warn us. The day Cain killed Abel was not the day Cain started hating Abel. The day the final thing happened, when he took whatever he took and he struck his brother, was not the day resentment started. It starts far long. You hear somebody saying, eh, he offended me five years ago. Five years ago. Five years ago. I wonder how some of us sleep at night. Five years ago. And you can bring out all of the details. That's hatred. It is resentment building up. Like he said something I did not like eh, four years ago. Even if it was last week, we must be careful lest we become like Cain and we become murderers in our hearts. Murdering brother after brother in church, sister after sister in church because we don't like them. And sometimes this is what happens in our marriages. Slowly, slowly, slowly. Resentment. I don't like how she talks. I don't like how he talks. Some of you are asking, how do I know? 
Well, I read a lot. And marriage issues often start like that. And then you are with a spouse of 10 years, 20 years, and then you realize, I actually don't love this person. I don't. I, I hate the very sight of this person. It did not start that day. It is a slow build-up. One day you realize in church that you just hate people. You don't want to be around them. You are in a program and you are frowning your face. Because you don't like them. They've offended you. It's not that day. It's slow build-up. We must not be like Cain. In the third place, the apostle teaches us that Christian love is always visible. Not merely inward. So there's a new phrase called, I hurt you. And there's even a popular television program that is a Bob Hart Abishola. I don't know how many of you know that. I don't know the reason why love was replaced with heart. But I think it was because when I say I hurt you, I'm just communicating that I feel a certain way about you. That I feel giddy giddy about you. You know, there's a popular song, a popular Christian song. As the song is starting, the first line is, Obim me name giddy giddy. The next line is, Butterflies in my belly. Some of you know the song already. This idea that it is something that is inward, the apostle debunks that in verse 18. He says, little children, I hope you can still see your Bibles, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Have you ever called somebody, and as you're calling the person, the person is telling you, ah, sorry, yo, I've been thinking about you. It's just that you called me. We all do it. We all do it. You just called me first. And the idea is, is the thought that counts. No, it's not the thought that counts. When we are talking about biblical love, it's not the thought that counts. It's not, I have you in my heart. I hurt you. I have you in my mind. According to the apostle, that idea falls short of Christian love. That one can exist in the world. Where I feel a certain way about you. And the example of this Christian love is our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16. He says, by this we know this kind of love. That Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Jesus himself said in John chapter 15 verse 13. He says, greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friend. The kind of love that the Bible talks about and the Bible calls Christian love is the love that is self-sacrificial. It is the love that is self-giving. It is not a love that exists in the head or exists in the mind or exists on chats, on emojis. It is a love that is outward, visibly expressed in a person giving himself or herself to another person. This is what Paul meant in Romans chapter 16 when he spoke of Priscilla and, Pris, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. And he says, Great Priscilla and Aquila, for me, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ who risked their lives for my, 
who risks their necks for my life. True biblical love would involve risks. True biblical love will involve being exposed to uncomfortable conditions because of my brother. You've heard this thing before. I don't have enough. Now how can I help somebody when I'm not even, I don't have enough? Well, the apostle tells us in one of his letters to the Corinthians, he said, there were certain people from Macedonia who did not have. But that did not stop them. They did not have. But that did not stop them. Christian love is having the little I have and I am spending it for the sake of my brother or sister. I am going beyond what is comfortable for me. Yes, I like sleeping eight hours a night. It, if I don't sleep eight hours at night, I'll be grudgy. But because a brother is in need, I can sleep four hours at night. Yes, so I like eating three square meals. If I don't eat three square meals, I will not have energy. But because a sister is in need, I'll be able to say, okay, take one meal, let me eat two. Oh, yes, I love that clothes. I love my clothes. I buy them here. I sew them here. But because I see somebody who genuinely needs it, I am willing to sacrifice of myself and what I have. In other words, there is no limit when it comes to Christian love. There is no limit. Money, property, energy, strength, time, resources. According to the Apostle John, using the example of Jesus Christ, this should be poured out. This is the first lesson we learn about Christian love. That this love is self-sacrificing and self-giving. It is not reckless. Remember, love is intelligent. It calculates and says, because this person has the seed of God in him. Not vague, like love people all over the world. More like sometimes you speak about a missionary activity. I saw something online. So we used to pray this prayer a lot when we were on campus. That Lord give me Nigeria or I die. And he said the brother that used to pray that God give me Nigeria. He is in Canada now. <laughs> he has run away. Give me the whole of Nigeria. Love everybody. No, John says look on your left and your right on a Sunday morning and love that person. Whether you know the person or not. Once the person has the seed of God, whether you like the person or not. Look at verse 17. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. Christian love, second lesson, involves care. Practical care. And the example he uses is that of opening the hearts and closing the hearts. And I was, as I was reading and studying, I was asking, how do we often close our hearts? We often close our hearts by saying, somebody better will do it. Somebody better will meet that need. What will my 500 do when the need is 1 million naira for a heart transplant? What will my 250 do when the need is this? Christian love involves care, opening up our hearts to people. We don't have to have all the money to love. We don't have to have all the time to love. We don't have to have all the resources to love. And one of the ways we see this is in Christian hospitality. Sometimes the excuse we give ourselves is, I don't have a big house. Or I don't have money to cook a big meal for everybody. Uh, go outside and buy Zobo. Or buy biscuits. And let's love one another with what we have. 
And the assumption that John uses here is true of every Christian community. There will always be somebody who has more of the world's goods. But in truth, all of us has the world's goods. What's the world's good? All of us have some money. We have some clothes. We have some property. We have some cars. We have some rooms. We have some lands. We have some food. We have some something. And he says when somebody is in need, we do this because the person is a believer. So this is what John means by Christian love. And trust me, it is very different from what is popular in our day. So what differentiates this love from the, world, the world's love? I think at the heart of this kind of love is what Christ has done. According to the world, love is going to be according to what you do. How do I see you? What's in it for me? What do I gain from you? Have you heard this thing before? That if a person does not benefit me, I don't have your time. That's the thinking of the world. And so we bring it into the church and we Christianize it. I'm chasing heaven. If you're not chasing heaven, I drop you by the way. And of course, we know the people we're talking about sometimes. The basis is what Christ has done. Because Christ has died for this person. Because Christ has given his life for this person. That's the source of my love. That's the source of how I view this person. That's the source of how I relate with this person. So what do I do when I struggle to love? I think we have to go to the cross. Because if we're going to be honest with ourselves, including the person speaking, ah, we don't love how we ought to love. And what John is doing here is not just to give us a test. He's, to, he's pouring us on that, guys, this is what we ought to be doing. Between, not just on Sunday, between Monday to Saturday. How do I go home after the Sunday service and I don't even call anybody or check on anybody or pray for anybody? And then the next Sunday, we are laughing and smiling. And he says, no, there should be love amongst God's people. We go to the cross and we repent of our sins. We repent of our clickness in church. We repent of our choosing certain people and pouring ourselves into those people. When we know there are other people in need or there are other people who are just like that person, but because we don't like them. Repent of the fact that we don't go out of our way for the brothers and sisters. Repent of the fact that we are too comfortable and we give a lot of excuses. I don't have time. I don't have money. It's too stressful. I want to sleep. I want my peace of mind. And we ask God. You see, the way we love, according to John, is by getting an understanding of what Christ has done. Because the more we see what Christ has done, even Jesus Christ linked these two things. He linked his love on the cross for his friends to his friends loving each other. Ah, let us see more of what Christ has done for us. And let that spur us on to love. And it will take effort. It will take sacrifice. It will take all of our energies. But thank God we have the Spirit of God working in us. And He can enable us this new week to love just as we ought to. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we, we ask that you would forgive us for our many sins in this area of loving one another as we ought to. And we ask this morning that you would help us to forgive, to forbear. You would help us to forsake old hurts 
and help us to love each other just as you loved us and give your life for us. We ask all of these things in Christ's name.